My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the content from the March edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to highlight relates to how to manage a high-output stoma. Jeremy Nightingale has written an excellent guide, authoritative and practical, covering the pathophysiology and practical management. Consider if the stoma output is high, exceeds intake, and treat early to avoid complications. Dehydration will occur with water, sodium, and magnesium deficiency. Remember the sodium content of the stoma fluid usually around 1,000 millimoles per litre. The cornerstone of management is to rehydrate and treat thirst, avoiding hypotonic fluids. Fluid replacement therefore needs to be with glucose saline solution, isoosmolar, the detail is in the paper. Weight and basic biochemistry should be monitored including urinary sodium. Omeprazole to reduce stomal output and loperamide to reduce transit may be helpful. In refractory cases, parental fluids with added magnesium may be required. Early restoration of intestinal continuity should be considered when possible. All these discussions in the article are in detail, helpful, remind you of the basic physiology, deal with risk factors and discuss complications including longer-term strategies which may potentially be the need for intravenous feeding. It's editor's choice this month and well worth working through. The second article relates to the provision and standards of care for treatment and follow-up of patients with autoimmune hepatitis. Autoimmune hepatitis is a substantial healthcare burden in the UK with significant variations in care, facilities and opinion regarding management. In this issue, Gordon and colleagues report a multi-centre study, 28 hospitals, looking at service provision and care of patients. A third lacked a hepatologist, only 18% had specialist nursing support for autoimmune hepatitis, and only 40% employed a histopathologist with special interest in liver disease. There were significant variations in monitoring treatment. 25% did not continue corticosteroids for 12 months. Regular blood monitoring was not always done. And not all patients with liver decompensation were referred for consideration of liver transplant. The authors recommend the further development of specialist liver centres as part of regional networks to improve monitoring and care with referral and discussion of complex cases. There's an excellent accompanying commentary from Roger Chapman who discusses this and other data that highlight the variable treatment regimens and outcome and the need to develop networks of care with therapeutic, organisational and structural changes required to improve the management of patients with autoimmune hepatitis. The third article I'd like to highlight is a review of bowel transit studies in children, evidence-based role and practicalities. It's well known that constipation is very common in children, young people and adults. Most have functional constipation and respond well to standard medical therapy. In difficult to treat constipation, investigation of colonic function can help guide therapy. 
In this issue, Popescu and colleagues discuss the strengths and limitations of the commonly available tests, including radiopaque marker studies, scintography, wireless motility capsule, and colonic manometry, all used to assess colonic transit. All address different aspects of colonic function, and normal values for many lack an evidence base. The authors comprehensively review the data and provide guidance on the most appropriate test for the particular clinical setting, helpfully discussing the specific indications and separating the tests into first and second line. It's great to have all this information pulled together as an invaluable resource when managing difficult constipation and investigating bowel transit is being considered. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to the endoscopic management of intentional foreign body ingestion and it's the experience from a UK centre. It's very interesting. Intentional foreign body ingestion accounts for around 4% of urgent endoscopic procedures with well-recognised complications including impaction and perforation. In this issue, Yodoli and colleagues report their recent experience, 1995 to 2020, of 239 episodes in 51 individuals, 78% female, mean age 23 years. There was a significant increase in incidents during the study period. 223 had a history of psychiatric illness. There was a wide range of items ingested. 90% underwent endoscopy, with the item being seen in 80%, mostly in the stomach. Most were removed successfully with mucosal injury seen in 33%, but no other significant complications. In 16 cases, the item could not be removed. Four were managed surgically and eight conservatively. Most procedures were performed between 8am and 8pm. There was no association with time of day performed and the outcome including length of stay. This is an impressive cohort with service implications and it's well worth working through the detail in the paper. The authors highlight a number of issues. Middle of the night endoscopy can be avoided in most cases. Repeat radiology prior to the procedure has the potential to avoid a number of procedures and local protocol should include access to and investment in social and psychiatric services. There's an excellent accompanying commentary, foreign body ingestion, understanding the implications. The final article I'd like to highlight this month is review of the current recommendations on the role of diet in the etiology and management of inflammatory bowel disease. Diet is a risk factor for and potential treatment option in inflammatory bowel disease. This includes the use of exclusive enteral nutrition as an induction treatment. In this issue, Gerasimides and colleagues discuss key themes. The role of diet in disease onset, the indications for and practicalities of exclusive enteral nutrition, partial enteral nutrition as an alternative induction strategy, elimination diets, emulsifiers and additives, and the role of supplementary enteral nutrition. The evidence informing some of these issues is at best patchy. The authors call for well-designed trials. In an environment where the Western diet is clearly a risk factor, inflammatory bowel disease is increasing in incidence and therefore prevalence 
and there is a high treatment burden. So optimizing the diet and nutritional status is crucial, probably best achieved when the condition is stable by healthy eating, which applies to the general population, for overall health and well-being. Please enjoy this issue. Please continue to read and join feedback on the journal. Follow us on Twitter. Engage in our frontline gastroenterology debates and listen to the regular podcasts accessed via the journal website. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thanks for listening. <music>